Welcome to Junkyard Theory, folks, and we've got Alan Unger on the show tonight. Alan is a Canadian filmmaker, and uh, he's got a few movies uh, under his belt, tapped out, gridlocked, and most famously, he is known for the Uncharted short film starring Nathan Fillion, which is how I came across him. Uh, actually, I had come across him before through an article on No Film School, and uh, as I was saying, I kind of relate more to uh, what he's written in 2016 now than when I read the article way back then. Alan, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, pleasure. Are you on? Uh, man, uh, I just wanted to, you know, uh, talk a little bit about, as an independent filmmaker, you venture out into action, and that's something that I personally can connect with on, on like, a uh, whole other level. And when you know uh, you go ahead and make action films, especially as an independent filmmaker on a budget, with the amount of restrictions that are placed on you, uh, you gotta sometimes cut ends and you know make things uh, do do a whole lot more to get your vision out there than if you probably had the budget. You know, so uh, walk me through you know uh, how you first of all got into filmmaking, and then when you started making your features, uh, playing around with action. What are this? What are the? What are the exceptional like uh, elements that you never really saw coming in? Uh, things that you kind of had to get adapted to on the floor. Well, I think I'm just going to jump in so I don't forget because the the one thing that I figured out on my own the hard way was that no matter how well you thought you could stage something or prepare for something, you're never prepared for how much time it actually takes to shoot action. It's an absurd <laughs> amount of time between safety and rehearsals and. We can get into all of that, um, but I want to put that first and foremost because I think it's it's a really crucial element that people don't consider, uh, whether in the business or they're not in the business. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I got started. I mean, I always loved movies. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to I used to skip school and fake sick so I could watch, you know, like old Michael Bay movies. And uh, you know, I was I went through like a John Woo phase in my in my childhood. So um, I used to just. I see be, you never really gotten over the Michael Bay phase, like. That poster right at the back. Well, it's actually funny. That's not because of Bay. That's just because a friend of mine is one of the producers. And oh, um, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's it's funny. That, that just happens to be a coincidence. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a huge fan of that film, funny enough. And I just moved into this place, and I was in Georgia filming my last movie when we moved in here. So my wife just grabbed the posters that were in my closet, which I had a lot more. But the, the layout of this office was so different that she only ended up putting up a couple of things. And I haven't been home in a while. I was in LA for the last four months. So I haven't even had time to actually, like, I've got like a random pillow there on a shelf because I just haven't had time to even organize my office. Like, I feel like I haven't even moved in yet. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I was always enamored by film. Um, I thought there was just something unique about this ability that you have as a filmmaker to sort of construct a narrative and have the ability to evoke whatever kind of emotional response you want from people. So like, let's say within the span of 90 to 120 minutes, you can make people laugh, cry, feel scared, tense, excited. And I just thought that was fascinating. I was obsessed. Um, you know, my mom was in the film business, but it was a little different. She, she, she owned this, uh, this store that did, um, photo processing back before digital. So in like the nineties and the early two thousands. And, um, so she would do a lot of uh, processing for location scouts. So if someone came to Toronto, which is where I'm from, born and raised, I still live there now. Um, you know, you'd come in, you would take photos of a location, and then you'd have to go to a one-hour processing, and they would process the photos. Um, and so she was sort of doing that for a little bit. And then my father had a telecom business, and they supplied a lot of walkie-talkies to movie sets. Again, purely coincidental because they weren't – they weren't movie nuts like 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 I was, right? Uh, it just happened to be a really good entrepreneurial uh, approach to, to running a business. So um, I was very fortunate that I was uh, able to go to film school in LA. So when I was in high school, um, I would finish my exams and then I would go to film school during the summer. So a lot of my friends would go traveling around Europe, backpacking. Uh, a lot of them went to Israel, some Jewish. So like coming from like the world I came from, like you kind of everyone went to Israel. It was like a thing that you did, right? Uh, I went to LA. You know, and uh, so I did film school there for a little bit, came back, uh, you know, I went to college here and I started shadowing producers, knocking on doors, picking up the phone, cold calling people to get 
you know, like internship opportunities or just the, the uh, opportunity to read a script, whatever. So um, I did that for a while and I got very, very lucky. Uh, I met someone in Los Angeles um, who happened to be from Canada as well, uh, in a small city very close to Toronto called London, Ontario, and um, offered me the opportunity to direct my first movie when I was 23. Um, and it was uh, one of those things where it wasn't exactly what I was looking for creatively. Um, I had not been into mixed martial arts and it was, it was sort of set against the backdrop of mixed martial arts right when, you know, the ascension and popularity was rising for the UFC. Um, and at the time, you know, the, the, the middleweight champion of the world was Anderson Silva. And so I started getting into MMA, became obsessed with the sport and, you know, went off and did this movie for like $500,000, like small, small indie movie. Uh, but then I got to work with Michael Bean from Terminator and Aliens, which was really cool. Uh, and it was a good experience. You know, I learned um, I learned a lot. And then from there, you know, I went through this this period, you know, because like you spend a lot of your life going, am I going to make a movie? Like, am I ever going to make a real movie? Right. Mm -hmm. And I say real because, you know, it's like we all have this funny definition of what like a real movie is. And I find myself still saying it even now that I've made a few movies and I've worked with big movie stars and I just finished a $10 million movie. You still say to yourself, like, oh, did I make a real movie? Um, yeah, I went through this period where I was sort of like, okay, am I ever going to make a movie again? Am I going to make something I'm happy with? Because, you know, like a lot of directors, we, uh, we're miserable. We're never happy. We're never satisfied. I mean, you're a filmmaker yourself. You get it. Um, but, no, it, it, was, it was a good experience. And then, you know, it opened up a few more doors. A lot of the producers and, and, and financiers from that film came back and said, what do you want to do next? So then I was able to do Gridlock, which was really – uh, more my style, you know, it was something that I really, really wanted to do. It was like a throwback to the 80s, 90s buddy cop movies, you know, very much, a, um, you know, a flip on the script of like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. So we went and did that. Um, Netflix bought the film, became a Netflix film, and um, it did well, and, and people really responded well to it. And, um, you know, we made that movie for like two and a half million dollars. It was a small, small film. But that's where I really learned and cut. This is where I cut my teeth on sort of action, if you will, um, yeah. because it was a lot of special effects, yeah. a lot of practical effects, which is why eventually I was asked to write the article for No Film School, which is where you would have gotten familiar with me, I guess, for the first time. Um, and, you know, I learned that, you know, there, there, there are ways to do action uh, on the independent level for less money. You know, you just have to be really strategic and, and, and smart about your planning and, and knowing and accepting ahead of time that you're probably not going to get 60, 70% of what you want. You know what I mean? So you kind of already have to be making these concessions in your mind. And so what I like to do is I'm always thinking, what's a popcorn moment? Like I call them popcorn moments. So it's mm -hmm. like, if you've got a big action set piece that you're making and you got all these really cool ideas, but you can only have one or you can only have two, you got to prioritize those and say, I'm going to get that no matter what. But then this cool little gag or stunt that I want to do here, if I have time for it, I'll squeeze it in. But knowing that I may not get it, the other ones are my popcorn moments, right? So yeah, taught that, that I'd say that movie taught me more than my first movie taught. Because um, in my first movie, I mean, I was still like a kid, right? I, I mean, I thought, you think you know everything. You think you, you've got it in your mind, but you have so much yeah. more to learn. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, about those popcorn moments, it's essentially like you kind of build your way up to those and say you don't necessarily have time for everything you plan. You prioritize those popcorn moments over something else and, you know, something essentially goes into the trash at the end of the day, as in I'm, I'm talking about shots that you plan, shots in the shot list. And when you are essentially kind of trying to, you know, decide which ones do go in the trash, which ones don't necessarily make, uh, you know, get, get, ever get shot. How do you kind of decide on that? Um, because essentially you are, you know, uh, in your article, you mentioned that you approach action first and foremost with the character and the story. So you are trying to tell yeah. something, you know? Yeah, so, so it's a process of elimination. And I think it comes down to not just when you cut action, but when you cut anything in a movie, because you will never get everything. Anyone who says they get everything is a liar. I, I can't swear on this podcast, so I'm not going to swear, but they're they're full of they're full of bull okay um, actually you can I, it's pretty unfiltered so no, no, I'm, I'm canadian i'm supposed to be coming off as like polite and and you know <laughs> so I, I can't swear 
But so um, is Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a little different. He's earned it at this point. I, I got some time to go. I got a little ways to go. Um, yeah, I, I think it always comes back to character and story. So if you have a beat or a stunt or a gag that has no sort of affiliation with or no bearing on what's going to happen narratively or for a character's arc, it's easy to toss in the trash. Um, but then if you are, let's say you're doing an action sequence and at this point you're just trying to do some really cool stuff, whether it's like choreography or a special effect and all the stuff you're doing just happens to not have anything to do with the narrative and it's just about mm. like a trailer moment, then I think you got to have to eliminate the stuff that is like more overcomplicated or, or might end up needing to be done on multiple takes. Because very often, like, you know, especially on an independent movie, you know, I had never done a car flip. I was supposed to do a car flip on a movie a couple of years ago, but I'm never, you know, you will be told you can only do it once, right? So get it right. Um, you know, with blanks and, and squibs and, and other sort of like pyro, you get a few shots at it, but like if you're cramped, like, I mean, gridlock, gridlock was one of those things where um, I was very lucky we had 32 days to shoot it, which is, not the case anymore for a lot of movies uh, being produced in North America. What's happened is a lot of the movies, the budgets get bigger, but the production budgets, the below the lines get a lot smaller. So your, your, your money that is going towards cast, producers, director, writer, all that kind of stuff ends up being so ballooned right now that the below the line just kind of gets axed. And so a lot of filmmakers now are ending up with a lot less days to do it, which is why the last film I did is not even an action movie, it's a drama, um, like a true crime drama. So um, I found that that it was a lot easier to make because I didn't have special effects or stunts. You know? Gotcha. And something that I really, uh, that something that really stuck with me on your article, I, I keep referring back to your article because it's something that I think any uh, independent filmmaker, whatever genre they're invested in, you know, it's something they should go and read. So probably gonna link uh, you know, the article in, in the uh, video. So do go check that down below. Uh, I'm glad someone said, read it. I'm glad someone read it. <laughs> <laughs> when it's up there on the internet, it's going to stay there forever. So, you know, essentially, I think whatever you put up on the internet is part of your legacy too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why, that's why you have to take what you do so seriously. I always say to people on a set, I got to live with this for the rest of my life. This this is part of the history books, not in terms of like it's ubiquitous. Maybe no one will see it, but it mm. lives forever, and you have to you have to be precious about it to some degree. One hundred percent. Yeah, uh, you mentioned specifically that independent filmmakers, like even an, even if you are a director, you kind of got to think a bit like a producer. Yeah, talk Absolutely. to me about that. So, look, there's a lot of filmmakers that pride themselves on being artists, which I do, by the way. Um, mm. But at some point, you have to understand that it's a business at the end of the day. It's, yeah. it's called the movie business, the film business. Like it's, it's, show business. Yeah, show business. Um, and so there's considerations that have to be made. And so I find that you could be better equipped and better armed to problem solve and get through the day, if you will, when you're able to put your thinking cap on as a producer and kind of understand the fiduciary responsibilities, the parameters that you're, you're sort of confined within. So I kind of had to very often on my first couple movies and even on my last movie, to be honest, put my producer hat on and say, okay, so I know I have X number of days. I know I have X number of shooting hours per day and I have this many pages to get through and I have this many shots to get through. At some point, basic math, it doesn't add up. So you got to figure out how you're going to get around it. But also, as a director, if you really want to fight for something, um, if you really want to fight for a moment or a shot or a location, you have to then say to yourself, well, at the cost of what? Because if I want to shoot this segment and I want to you know, frame it this way and I want to get you know, like this kind of coverage, but I only have you know, the ability to, to do that for four hours in the morning and then it's lunch or whatever, you have to say to yourself, okay, how can I actually get this done? And even that goes back to prep. You know, if you're location scouting and you're like, I really want this building. And then they say to you, well, here's the problem. You can't have this building because either it's too expensive or, um, you know, we have to hire extra security or we have to, you know, pay for more permitting and parking. 
you know, usually a lot of directors are just like, figure it out, get it for me, get it for me. But I'm always like, okay, let's say I do want this. Here's how I can solve it, guys. What if instead of, you know, we shoot here four hours, we shoot here two hours and I just cover it this way, but then we can bounce over here and I can also use this location as the other location in the script. And this way, we actually end up staying here longer and getting more of what we need instead of, you know, doing a unit move or whatever. So you have to just be able to put your, your thinking cap on and, and understand, you know, that uh, there's a lot of moving pieces and parts to the whole machine that you you need to tackle. And so sometimes you can't just be thinking about it creatively. You have to be thinking about it logically and practically. That's so true because uh, I think with the years, you know, as, as the years go by, with technology democratizing filmmaking, I think this case is like so true now than it was like maybe like a couple of years back. If you are a filmmaker, essentially you have to put on your producer cap on at some point and get some, you know, uh, yeah. go and go and get it. So yeah. problem solving, that is pretty much like the key word in filmmaking. And every single guest, no matter what department they're in, has always uttered. You know, it's, listen, it's, it's, it's trench warfare. Like that's what movie <laughs> that's what movies are. Filmmaking is trench warfare. Um, 100%, yeah. and um, you know, you, you just have to figure out how you're gonna get through it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about the uncharted fan film. I don't necessarily like the term fan film because it's so well made. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I have to do that legally. Um, yeah, we it was a last minute decision. The film had sort of been ready to be launched. And then at the last minute, I was like really nervous about what could happen in terms of like copyright infringement. So we, uh, I spoke to a lawyer. I mean, I, I've been speaking to lawyers throughout the whole process um, and figuring out what the disclaimer had to be. And we all literally thought with the disclaimer at the head of it, um, mm -hmm. I didn't have to say fan film because it was obvious that there's no affiliation and there was no monetization. But uh, just as like a cherry on top to, to protect me and cover my ass, we, we put fan film, but yeah, the, Definitely the funniest notion of it all was when it kind of hit the internet and sort of blew up. A lot of bloggers, critics, journalists, people online were like, this isn't a fan film. And I was like, yeah, anyway. Well, I appreciate that though. How did this come about? Because you know, uh, this, I think it was released in 2018 and there were like a, yeah, there were like a few other short films based on existing IP, which weren't necessarily affiliated, you know, there was no affiliation like just like uh the film that you made so i think model combat had a short film kevin tangerine did it and uh adi shankar did one with power yeah uh, dan trachtenberg did portal yeah there was mortal combat mm. there was portal there was dirty laundry um yeah there's, there's yes there's, yes and power rangers and power rangers yeah so uh, there, there was a string of films that were kind of coming out and the audience reception was like Phenomenal. People really, really loved it. I, I remember watching all of these and then when it came to one shot, I was like, okay, so finally we're kind of getting into that place where uh, we'll be seeing a proper feature film based on existing uh, video game IP. <laughs> and uh, let's get into that a little bit later, but talk to me about, you know, how this materialized. Yeah, um, it's funny, you know, for years I had been thinking about it and I was, look, you know, part of being a filmmaker is being a dreamer. I mean, that's really mm. what it is. I mean, we're all insane and we have these big aspirations and dreams. And we all live inside a bubble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so the idea kind of came to me a couple of years before. Um, and uh, I think it was probably, it was probably around the time that the Power Rangers one came out because... I think Mortal Kombat came out in like 2010. It's been quite, it's like over a decade. Yeah, yeah. And I'd said to a friend of mine, you know, as a huge video game nut, which I am, um, wouldn't it be really cool one day to see IP with the actor or actress that was sort of like fan picked? And obviously, the problem with it in Hollywood, and I don't think I need to tell you this, it's kind of self explanatory, but you know, it's art versus commerce. So, hmm. you know, there'd be an argument made from the studios and the executives saying, well, there are certain people you cannot put in a movie if it's over $20 million. So let's say, you know, you're going to make an Uncharted movie for $70, $80 million. 
there's like five men, five women you could put into that film to justify the spend of that budget, plus the, the prints and advertising, the P&A. So to recoup that money, who's going to get butts and seats, right? And often they don't think TV stars or, you know, the creative picks are going to do that. So I just thought it would be really cool. I was like, you know, how cool would it be one day to actually get the person that everyone thought should be Nathan Drake? You know, no one's ever going to do it, but it'd be really cool if they did. And then I was set to go make a film at the end of 2017. It was a big movie um, with uh, Frank Grillo, uh, Andy Garcia, Carrie Ann Moss, Tyler Posey, and Cat Graham. It's a really great cast, really big movie. And literally the week we were supposed to start uh, shooting, the movie went down. It's a long story, but it was devastating. It was like heartbreaking. And I had spent that whole year prepping that film. So naturally, I didn't really have time to play video games. So I had gone back and played the DLC Lost Legacy, which I hadn't gone around to yet. Because I played Uncharted 4. I probably played it through like two, three times from start to finish. I loved the game. It was a masterpiece. But I never played the DLC. So over Christmas break, 2017, I booted it up. I played it. I got back in the hang of it. I downloaded the digital, um, the digital, uh, whatever it was. It was like, not the definitive edition, but like they had like all three of them remastered for PS4. So I started playing the games again. And then I was on a holiday with my, uh, my wife, who was my fiance at the time. And I booked this whole sort of vacation as like a wrap gift to myself for the movie that didn't happen <laughs> so I'm like in St. Lucia. And it also happens to be, it's Christmas and it's my birthday. And I'm just like super depressed because you know, this movie that I've been working really hard on, you know, got shut down and uh, it just hit me. I don't know. I was kind of like, I'm sick and tired of being at the behest of other people. I don't like when my fate is in the hands of others. Um, mm. I had made a nice amount of money becoming part of the director's guild and, and prepping up a film of that size. So I was like, what could I do that I can control that I can make myself essentially uh, because I need a bait and switch because I'm going to go back to Los Angeles in the new year and everyone's going to ask me, how's the movie? Can I see it? How did it go? And nobody wants to hear about why a movie fails. Nobody ever cares about, I mean, people like, like the story, but people want to know why things succeed. So I was like, yeah. Oh man, I'm going to have to figure out really quickly how I'm going to, have something else to talk about because all I'm going to be able to talk about is why something failed. And I don't want to be associated with that. And then I was like, you know, this idea that I had, I was like, you know, maybe now's the right time. Like I have the money to finance it. I have a little bit more credibility in my career. Maybe I should just try it. And so I called a friend of mine who's, who's a well-known producer who happened to know Nathan Fillion. And I pitched it to him and I said, can you ask and he said, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I'm not doing that. And I said, no, trust me. Like, he doesn't know much about pop culture. So I was like, you should go online, go to Google. I sent him all this material, all these links. Basically wrote him an essay on why it's a no-brainer. And I said, you can have a credit on it. If it does well, you want to be part of it, whatever. You don't have to pay for anything. Just help me put it together. So he refused initially. Sorry? He refused initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my friend refused. <laughs> okay. my, oh, friend, my, friend, okay. yeah, my friend refused. Right. So I convinced him and then he sent Nathan a text and Nathan got back to him and said, tell me more. So I flew to Los Angeles. We had dinner. Um, he brought his manager along sort of, you know, like it was intimidating. It was like, kind of like, like a guard dog, like testing me. <laughs> and I was legit. And yeah, we, we had dinner um, and I kind of just gave him an, an impassioned speech and pitch as to why he should do it. And I knew that he, I knew enough at that point to know that I had a good shot because it was something he wanted to do. So we shook hands and we did it. That was it. Um, we put it together really fast. And, you know, December, I was sitting on a jet ski uh, in St. Lucia, depressed on my birthday because my movie fell apart. And then four or five months later, we were shooting um, Uncharted in LA. And yeah. It's funny how things turn out because, uh, I'm assuming, right? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You were in that in that place where you kind of wanted to uh, paint over the feeling of, you know, uh, having almost come close to shooting something, but then everything fell apart, and you have these negative uh, emotions attached, and you can't really go back out to face people, essentially. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. 
And I think like creativity, uh, I, I don't really remember who said it, but maybe it was Van Gogh, I don't know. Uh, great art comes from, you know, dep depression, neg like essentially negative emotions. So I guess this is one such case. Well, listen, Ron Howard talks about how filmmaking is like getting your heart broken over and over again, I think. So uh, it's always associated with negativity, right? Mm. Trial by fire. Yeah. Find a way to uh, convert that into something special. I mean, you hope it's special. You think it's yeah. special, but we're also, a lot of us are crazy, right? So we, we never know. <laughs> you got to plead insanity at some point if someone pulls you off. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, so, you know, having done, um, say, you know, Uncharted, the, the fan response, all of that, didn't that, didn't you hear anything from, I, I guess, Naughty Dog or Sony or whoever had the rights to? Um, yeah, so it was interesting. Um, you know, I didn't expect that it would lead to me getting the job because at that mm -hmm. point I didn't have, you know, maybe look, 20 years ago when there was this sort of movement that existed where a lot of like young filmmakers got fucked from obscurity to do studio movies. Um, it's mm -hmm. happening a lot less now. Um, you know, obviously, like people who still are commercials directors, Sundance winners, it happens. But, you know, we kind of figured they wanted someone who had like a box office track record, of course, because you're mm -hmm. going to spend that kind of money. You know, you need to hire the right person who's going to ensure they, they deliver. Um, so at first we had heard, I mean, you know, we had heard from uh, just through social media, you know, they retweeted it. Naughty Dog enjoyed it. Druckman enjoyed it. Um, Amy enjoyed it. Um, but um, my friend who was a development exec at PlayStation reached out to me and said, by the way, this is making the rounds at the office. And we're not sure what to do. And some of the guys are like, do we shut this down? Do we not? But I told them not to because I thought this would be great and it's good publicity for them. Like, I honestly, like, you know, I had heard from other sources that they moved more copies of the game after this came out and that more people were buying the uh, the trilogy, the remastered trilogy. Mm -hmm. I also like to think that it gave the movie traction. You know, a lot of people were talking about Uncharted more in that summer than had been for years, you know. True. And so, you know, I ended up taking a meeting with the Arads and I ended up taking a meeting with Atlas, uh, who were all producers on the film. And they were all very complimentary and they had said, you know, you did a great job. Obviously, we're not going to hire you for the movie. You already know that. I said, yeah, I'm not expecting the job, but, you know, it's totally fine. Um, and that was it. You know, it was very cordial. Everyone was very polite and, and, and respectful. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it was happy. I mean, a lot of other people in the community from the gaming side, the movie side, clearly poured out their love for it. So that was fine. I mean, it wasn't like I needed the validation at that point. I think we knew we had done something special that was sure. going to resonate with the community and with people around the world. And it obviously, what's crazy about it, and I think the actors felt this way too, Nathan and also Stephen Lang, who's a friend of mine that we'd worked together on Gridlock. That's why he came mm -hmm. out as a neighbor, basically for lunch. He's like, I'm doing this for lunch. I'm like, you're doing it for lunch. Um, <laughs> they were overwhelmed as was I, with, with how people felt, um, what it meant to them. You know what I mean? It's like you've got, the, you know, the thing about gamers is a lot of gamers are introverted. A lot of gamers feel like they can't be who they want to be out in real life, you know? And, and it's easy to be an avatar. It's easy to have your group of friends on Discord and sort of just mm. live in that space. And, 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 you know, maybe you're shy. Maybe there's, there's all kinds of things, you know? I know gamers um, who became successful film screenwriters, directors used to say, yeah, I came from a broken home and, and gaming was an escape or hey, I was depressed. I was bullied in high school. I played video games to get me through it. So it's interesting how much these kinds of things mean to people. And when this came out, you start to see all these, you know, men with people around the world just saying like, I've wanted to see this for so long. It was kind of like a dream of mine. And you made it come true. There was something magical about seeing that character that I identify with, that I relate to on not the big screen, but, you know, on the silver screen, uh, being personified by like a real person that I thought in my mind was suited to play this part. And it was, uh, it was incredible. It was crazy. Yeah.
so with you know uh the games which obviously had like a big mythology by the point you know you did this little adaptation how did you decide okay uh we're gonna pull these these elements and end up creating this story because you have so much to draw draw from how did you narrow it all down honestly i didn't want to rehash uh one of the plots from the games because they did it so hmm. perfectly it would be a disservice yeah. honestly it would be disrespectful so me and jesse wheeler who's my writing partner on it we kind of played through all the games again and i just said you know what if we had it take place between one of the entries two and three three and four maybe we should do it between two and three because he loses mm -hmm. his uh, ring and his necklace at the end of i think it's at the end of three um and so you know we thought it would be really cool to make it feel like it could have existed within the canon of the franchise within that the mythology um and also knowing that we we're going to have a super limited budget i was like how do we do this in such a way where we don't have to blow things up and have him scaling walls and climbing a palace or whatever um and so we kind of just wanted to tell a story that felt somewhat contained but was very much coming from a place of character and it was really i mean really what it was was a showcase for nathan to be nate and and i think a lot of people wouldn't have cared how that was done whether he jumped off a building or not so we kind of just came up with something that that felt like it was at the end of a journey and the beginning of a new journey kind of like a prelude a prologue to a new adventure that would be the start of a new game essentially or a franchise the film franchise if you will but yeah i mean that's kind of that's kind of what we talked about that's interesting and <clears throat> a bit of a controversy uh, i don't know what i don't want to push the topic into like you know controversial waters but what do you think uh studios kind of get right or wrong when it comes to uh the feature film adaptation the studio well oh, man <laughs> I, used to, I used to answer this question a lot more it's been a minute um <laughs> look i think that i think that there's two things that gamers take away from a game that they play at least in my opinion the mm -hmm. first is the character um, are they identifiable, relatable? Um, do they represent something that you identify? Yep. The second thing is the world building, the elements. What makes mm -hmm. that uh, world and the game unique? What makes the game unique? What makes it magical? And so very often I find that Hollywood has not been able to do any of that really well. Um, and, you know, it's getting better. You know, uh, there's improvements. Obviously, I think The Last of Us will be great. Craig Mazin's an incredible uh, filmmaker and writer Chernobyl's one of the best miniseries I've ever seen um, and you know I know that there's other things coming up that are in development that are in pretty good hands but very often I think it's just taking away what made the game special and magical for that community and a lot of people in Hollywood seem to forget that the gaming industry is far bigger and more profitable than the movie industry because 10 years ago 15 years ago I was telling people hey uh, games are going to take over if they haven't already. A lot of people in Hollywood were like, oh, Marvel's going to be this, DC's going to be that, we've got all these franchises, James Bond. And so I think that obviously the right thing to do is try to understand that there's a way to make something that doesn't just fit and cater to one demographic. And that was kind of what I did with Uncharted. I was kind of like, look, I'm making this for the gamers. I'm making this for the fans. But I'm also making this for people who have never played the game, people who may not even like video games. How do I get them interested in buying this game, essentially, right? And so Hollywood- That was me. <laughs> Hollywood leaned too far in the other direction. They're just like, we just need to cater to movie audiences. The gaming audience will show up because they're already fans of the game. I think that's wrong. I think very often the biggest thing that I can single out is that the gamers are not being considered. Now, again, it's changing. It's starting to change. But in the past, I haven't seen it. And that's been the biggest problem. And now everyone That's... is bandwagoning. Everyone and their mother wants a video game property in Hollywood because one or two, you know, entries were successful. Now everybody's mining the properties, uh, trying to find lucrative deals and being like, oh, what's the next franchise? You know? Yeah. yeah. Can I go back a little bit on you know, uh, filmmaking generally? So are there any skills that you probably learned from other disciplines which have transferable skills when it came to, you know, directing, writing, producing, anything? Um, honestly, 
time management and problem solving. I mean, we're the only kind of two. I mean, look, I've always been a creative. I've always been, you know, like I was never the math guy. I was never the guy in school who was into sciences or anything else. It was always arts. It was always the arts. So from a very early age, it was just the sort of creative dreams and aspirations that I had. Um, but, you know, obviously in your upbringing, you learn basic skills. Um, mm. You learn basic things that you need to understand in the real world responsibilities, right? Um, and I think a lot of that is true in film. You know, movie business, we get away with a lot of really stupid things and people and characters. And, you know, it's, it's one of the only businesses, I think, in the world where you can be on a movie set and your actor is 40 minutes late. He's in his trailer. And they say, why? Well, he's doing a line of cocaine. And like, in what other world does that sound normal? You know what I mean? So like, there's all these things in, in the in the culture of the, the film world that are very different. Um, but no, I think honestly, I, I would say that at least just for me, um, just basic problem solving and, and, and time management is kind of what I applied to, uh, to the filmmaking process that seemed to help me. But I also know a lot of artists and filmmakers who are lazy and late, so I don't know. <laughs> You can't generalize too much, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> we're all different. We're all different. We're all different beasts, right? 100%. And, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, so writing, I mean, this is as lonely a job as, as it gets. So you're locked away in a room or whatever, uh, trying to bridge those 12 inches between your head and the screen or paper, which is which I personally consider like the longest distance in the universe. <laughs> and uh, is there anything like you know uh, what what do you do to kind of get your creative juices flowing and kind of uh, essentially you know hit targets, not deadlines per se, but more like character beats. That's a great question. Um, although I'm going to make a comment on the first thing you said, which is really interesting. You said being a writer is one of the loneliest things. I, uh, I gave a presentation in LA at an agency uh, to these new agents about a month ago. And I actually, what I said to them was uh, being a director is one of the loneliest things. And they were very confused by it. And I said, the reason is because very often as the director, you've got this vision, you've got this idea in your mind of what this is going to be and very often not everybody understands that and not everybody no you you, you are right you and are not right. everybody agrees with that yeah. yeah. and so i said very often people won't talk about this because it's taboo but being a director can be very lonely sometimes it can feel very isolating um as you try to fight against the world to try to get what it is that's in your head try to communicate and convey that to other people um which is a skill by the way i would say the biggest skill that you need to have when you start is figuring out how to communicate what's in here to everybody else. Now, it's easy to say, hey, we're going to do a crane shot. We're going to shoot this and he's coming out. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they understand what, what it is like fully encompassing in your mind, right? Yeah, storyboards and shot lists and this and that. But so often you're moving so fast and you have to try to, you just always assume people understand what's in your mind because you think they've read the script like you have, they've prepped the movie like you have. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of just, getting the creative juices flowing. I don't know. It's a great question. Like I haven't been writing as much as I used to I think now is, you know, where I am in my career, I'm sort of jumping onto projects that kind of already exist and then sort of putting my spin on it. Um, mm -hmm. like a director's polish. Um, I, I think it's just a discipline. I think that I kind of just envision in my mind, the finished product and feeling excited about that and knowing that I need to get it done. Um, I've certainly been in situations where I've had writing assignments where I've been hired to rewrite stuff or ghostwrite. Um, and there's days where it's a slog and you're like, oh my God, I've got 20 more pages to do. Oh my God, I'm going to get through this. Um, sometimes it's good just to, just to stop and you know get away from the screen, get away from the page, go outside, watch another movie, watch something that's similar and just kind of like reorient yourself. Because if you're just going to sort of sit there, bang your head against the wall or throw things at the wall and see what sticks, I don't think necessarily you're going to end up with the best material. I think it's always about a fresh perspective as well, because, you know, one of the biggest things that we lack, and I don't say we as in like me specifically, but I've been there before, which is like our business, our community lacks self-awareness very often. And you could attribute that to certain people who just 
don't have the self-awareness or you can attribute it to artists who are so deep in the recesses of their not own minds but their their pages their scripts their projects that they've got tunnel vision at that point and they, they don't even know if it, even how often does a filmmaker say that they're so deep in it they don't even know if what they're making is good anymore we've all been there right and then you got to just rely on your gut and your instinct to hope that you've strung together something decent that people are going to like yeah um, so yeah i use that to motivate me i kind of just think about the end product and the exciting sort of emotions that i feel that come with that and it kind of gets me through it i really like what you said about self-awareness because this is something you know uh, not just in filmmaking but i think something that people today in general have uh i guess you know less focus on what do you normally uh, what practices would you recommend a filmmaker to i don't know practice or do in order to kind of uh, maybe uh, reflect on things that they've done and essentially improve on their craft i don't know i think that's i think that's a hard question or answer rather to nail down because everybody treats the process differently yeah i mean uh, sorry uh, what what do you do what do i do in terms of mm. Well, maybe maybe let's say you've done a film, you wrap work on it, sure. and before you move on to the next one, do you take anything away? Like, all right, there are lessons that I've learned from this. Uh, I probably messed up X Y Z on this. Oh, uh, what am I gonna? You know, I mean, I look, mean, we all we all look back on the things that we made and we say we could have done this better, we could have done that better. Um, I think there's a balance. There's kind of like a fine line that you have to walk. Because if you get too caught up in that, it holds you back. You can't really move forward because then you're obsessing and dwelling over things in the past. Hmm. So I always try to look at it and say, okay, here are the things that I did well. And here are the things I'm proud of. And knowing that I, you know, and like, I don't think you're going to call them mistakes because you did them for a reason. Obviously, hmm. there was something that, you know, motivated you to shoot something a certain way or give direction a certain way or cut it a certain way. So I don't think it's fair to say it's a mistake. And it's like kind of interesting. Like Martin Scorsese talks about how um, he would never go back in and change one of his movies like George Lucas or Michael Mann. He also talks about how the director's cut isn't a thing because the final movie that you make, so let's say it was two and a half. I mean, I just went through this on Bandit. It was two and a half hours long. Now it's two hours, right? And someone's like, oh, what about your cut? What about your cut? And I go, no, this is actually my cut. Because I put all of this in the movie and I decided to cut all those things out. This is the movie. Now, there are the rule. The, we don't have to go into the whole Snyder cut thing. We know exactly why that happened. There was a tragedy involved and there was politics involved. But, you know, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Look, there's, there's two sides of the argument. I think you could say that George Lucas going back and tweaking parts of Star Wars is a very mature way for him to sort of like go through his own therapy and the mistakes he thought he made and he can go back and fix them, right? Or, oh, we didn't have time. That sound effect is terrible. I'm going to go back. I'm going to fix that sound effect, right? But, and Michael Mann's the same thing. Like Michael Mann recolored Thief, I think. Um, and there's like two or three versions of that film. If you haven't seen it, you should. Um, and then others say, let it, let it live where that was you. You made that decision as a 25 year old. And now you're a 45 year old filmmaker. You're in a different chapter of your life. You have a different skill set. You've learned a lot. Leave that where it is so you can continue to learn from it. You know what I mean? So for me, I don't often go back and look at my old work. Um, Uncharted, I did because it's so short and, and because it's like the one thing I've done that I'm like, just unanimously happy with across the board. And, and I know the kind of joy it brings other people. And I like to feel that again, but I don't go back and watch it and say, I should have done this or I should have done that. I really don't. Um, and I try not to, because I think it then just consumes you and you, you know, the learn the, the lessons that you've learned, you can take away when you finished it and you're still in it when the movie's coming out. And then that chapter is closed and you got to move on to the next chapter. That's, <laughs> I think that's solid advice across the board. When it comes to pretty much any discipline, like live in the now. You did what you did for a reason and just move past yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's solid. Uh so moving you know, moving on. Uh now that you've done um, I'm assuming it's three three features. 
Yeah. Three features. Yeah, I've produced, um, I've produced a few features uh, other than those films, but directed three, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, having directed three features and produced some others, uh, acting solely as a producer versus, you know, directing, like, the, the disparity or the differences between these two, uh, how would you weigh them, like, you know, when it comes to, uh, I would say, maybe... <laughs> the the primary thing that comes to my mind is like stress levels, obviously. But I was just talking <laughs> with someone about this. It's funny that you asked. Sorry, I was just talking to somebody about this. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so oh, let's take take into account stress levels as well, and also, uh, I, I guess, like you know, with with those two designations, the other responsibilities that come in and like handling, you know, you you are on two levels of uh, the hierarchy. Yeah, um, you know the people um, management aspect. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be fair to say that producing is easier than directing because they're both incredibly difficult mm. to do, and if everybody could do them, they would. Um, producing comes with a lot less emotion, I find, uh, at least for me. As a director, mm. you get very emotional and protective over these things, and as a producer, I think you're just sort of trying to practically apply logic to situations and put fires out. You know what I mean? Um, I would say it is far more mentally exhausting. At least, and again, having gone through this, because I'm, I'm gearing up to produce a film right now that I'm not directing, and I've produced two others that weren't the, the three features that I did. Um, I think I'm able to catch my breath a lot more as a producer than I am as a director. <laughs> um, as a director, look, some of the responsibilities are the same. Getting the movie done on time, on budget, and delivering something of quality is the responsibility of a director and a producer. But the producer is not sitting there talking to the actors. The producer is not sitting there thinking about all these shots and all these things that you know the director has in, in, in their mind, how they're going to string it together. So I'd say my stress levels specifically are down as a, as a producer uh, compared to directing. Um, when I'm directing and producing, that's just a cause for, that's, that's bad news. Like that's, you know, astronomical damage. It's astronomical damage. <laughs> what happened on my last movie? Um, but yeah, I think it's just there's just a different process, different responsibilities. The director always has to be on the set. The producer is wandering back and forth to the production office, making calls and doing all these kinds of other things behind the scenes. That's the thing is like the director should be insulated to a certain degree that they don't know that we're about to lose that actor. They don't know we're about to lose that location producers behind the scenes trying to prevent that and should ensure that the director can stay focused and do their yeah. job. Um, so sometimes I like that because as a director, uh, I don't have to worry, pardon me, but all those things happening. Um, I get shielded. <laughs> nice. Um, where do you, so you have, the, you know, this is a, a question that kind of pops up very often and I think it's, the, the frequency at which it pops up now is kind of like reducing also. But, you know, with the pandemic, like uh, the entire filmmaking landscape, the, most of the distribution landscape started changing, you know, with theatrical and streaming. And started all. Change, it's funny, it started to change a little bit before as well. But, but yeah. True. Probably the pandemic, I guess, like catalyzed it. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, where you know, uh, it's it's a I, I think it's safe to say that you never know where things are heading like it's so unpredictable but having been in the business for you know the duration that you have where do you see things kind of like you know um, crawling down yeah i think that less films are going to go to theaters i think that big temples franchises comic ip whatever you want to call them those will continue to dominate the theatrical landscape um, I think that now that those antitrust laws were squashed about a year, year and a half ago, it was back in the golden era of Hollywood, the studios owned their own theaters, right? Yeah. So I don't know how much you know about this, but you know, Warner Brothers had its own theaters, MGM had its own theaters. So what I think is going to happen at some point is now Disney, for instance, is going to own its own, like you'll go to a Disney, uh, compound theme park, what do you want to call it? And there'll be a Disney theater that's only showing Disney movies, Disney restaurants, merch, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I think we're definitely headed towards that. Um, whether that's like sort of like the predominant 
thing that's going to happen with all the studios. I, I don't know, but I could certainly see Disney doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the model's going to keep changing. I think people have subscription fatigue right now. There's too many <laughs> and platforms available. Um, I think we're going to start to go back and see uh, AVOD, which is advertised. So it's like commercials. You know, you got to watch ads at the beginning, like a pre-roll, a mid-roll, um, mm. watch a movie. And I think that's what we're going to see if people don't want to be paying um, for Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, Paramount, Disney, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I, I think that we're kind of moving towards that, to be honest. And I'm interested to see what happens. But me personally, I will always be an advocate on going to the theaters. There's nothing like it. Um, but I think it's, at the same time, it's hard to say now what warrants or justifies a film going to theaters. True. I've got a movie, True. got a movie coming out now that I think is great, and I have to sit and say to myself, "Okay, seeing this on a big screen, it's going to be special for a lot of people." But does it have to be seen on a big screen? Not necessarily. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's nice. It's preferred, and there's nothing like it. But if it means more people are going to see it and it's going to be available at home, so be it. More people see it. True. I think such was the case with uh, the Northman. Like, you know, it's it's found better life uh, on uh, streaming than it did in theaters. But I mean, it's a, it's an amazing film. And same with Nicolas Cage's movie, Unbearable Weight. It's a great film, oh, but yeah. it didn't do well in theaters because I think it has a place at home on streamers. I think it's the kind of film you can watch at home and enjoy with your friends or your family, whatever. That's very true. But you know, Spider question. you're gonna want to see on the big screen. That's so true. Final question. Um, when can we expect Bandit? Uh Bandit is gonna be out this fall. Nice. Yeah, I'm very, very excited about it. So you're deep in uh post-production, you've just finished the mix. Yeah, we just finished the mix. I'm supposed to get a final copy today. Uh of the color and uh, some of the VFX just to review and finalize. And then it gets, and then it gets ready for deliverables to go out to the distributors and, and kind of get ready. I mean, we're waiting on a couple of festivals as well. So, you know, our fingers are crossed. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be out this fall. And it's, uh, it's very, very different. I think from what people might come to expect with me, which I'm excited about because it's not, it's unlike anything I've ever done. Um, and you know, there's no, guns or violence or shooting or action it's it's all very much grounded uh as sort of like a drama with some comedy and some sort of thriller elements thrown in but it's it's a based on a true story and a, and a book as well so um it was it was a nice sort of um challenge and step up for me gotcha so looking forward to that and uh, all the best with the final uh laying the final touches and uh looking forward to you know seeing more Amazing stuff from you down the line, man. Thank you Thank so much for doing this, Alan. We yeah, will hopefully get you back on the show. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Sometime when I have more the line. <laughs> 100%. Thank you so much. And until then, this is Junkyard Theory, folks.